To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever owned something that was extremely valuable, only you didn't realize its value until much later? The former senior pastor of the historic Progressive Baptist Church, a man by the name of Charlie Dates, tells a story of when he first arrived at Progressive Baptist. He was the youngest senior pastor in the church's history, and as a young new pastor, he had a bunch of new ideas, which, as you can imagine, garnered him a lot of favor from the established members. So one of his mentors gave him some advice. He says, Charlie, when you get there, do yourself a favor. For the first year, don't change anything. Don't touch anything. Just keep the church going as usual. Well, those are tough orders for an ambitious young pastor. But he did good with his instruction, except for one thing. There was this old piano, a big old eight-foot grand concert piano that sat center of the chancel, right in the middle of the stage. And it just took up tons of space. The thing about it was it was in such bad disrepair that they never even used the thing. It just sat there collecting dust. And Charlie, he really wanted to get rid of it. But he wouldn't dare move it because this thing was so old that some people in his church thought that Jesus had learned to play chopsticks on the thing. Okay, you just don't get rid of Jesus's piano. So here's what he decided to do. He decided that he would have the thing assessed and um, maybe they would condemn the thing and then he could get rid of it. Or at least maybe they can get the thing working again. So company after company would come out and they would study it and they would, you know, they'd shake their heads and they'd grunt. And uh, one of the uh, repairmen said, listen, pastor, you don't want to go through the trouble of fixing this thing. You know, here, here's what we'll do. You give me this old piano. I'll, I'll use it for parts and I'll give you a brand new piano. We'll call it even. You don't have to worry about a thing. Well, that sounded pretty good to, to Charlie. Except for he thought to himself, that sounds a little too good to be true. So he had another guy come out to uh, inspect the thing. And, and he said the same thing. But this time, this guy offered money on top of the trade-in. Well, this happened two, three more times. And finally, he, it occurred to him that clearly these guys knew something about this piano that he didn't. And that's when he decided to have the people who made the piano come out to look at the thing. So two women from the piano came, company came out to look at this thing, and, and they gave it a thorough inspection. You know, they looked under it, they played with it, they tinkered with it. And when they were all done, they said, good news, pastor. You got yourself some good bones here. The bad news is it definitely needs some work. It needs a new floorboard, some strings and keys need to be replaced, or some mechanical things that we need to touch up. The whole thing needs to be stripped and revarnished, but once you do all that, this thing will be as good as new. You can play it as long as you like. Great news. Charlie was ecstatic. He said, fantastic. When can you get started? They said, as soon as you write us a check for $50,000. <laughs> Not exactly what he was planning on spending. So I said, well, if that's the case, um, I'm sorry to have wasted your time, but we're going to need to keep looking, come up with some other option. One of the inspectors asked him, well, what exactly are you going to do with this thing? He said, well, I'll probably just trade it in. These, these repair guys want to offer me a brand new one if I give them this old one. Might even get myself a Yamaha keyboard, something a little bit smaller, you know? Well, the inspector said, no, 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 sir, you cannot do that. To which she said, yes, 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 I can do that, and I'm going to. She said, no, come here. And she lifted the lid on the piano, and she said, can you, can you read the name that's on that piano? He said, sure, Steinway and Sons. She said, exactly. 
And let me tell you something about this model. When they were making this model, they made less than five a year. This is one of the most rarest sought-after grand pianos that Steinway & Sons made. You may spend $50,000 on this, but it is worth almost a half a million dollars. Far more money than what those other pianos are worth. Even in its dilapidated condition, it was worth more than anything he was being offered. It may have looked dis disheveled and in disrepair, but its value far exceeded its appearance. Extreme value hidden in plain sight. As we read through our Gospels, especially the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see the writers attempt to explain to us that even though Jesus seems like an ordinary person, you know, some run-of-the-mill carpenter from the backwoods of Israel, born into an inconsequential family, that hidden underneath that facade was a person of the utmost significant value. We get glimpses of them trying to explain this to us at his birth and at his baptism and through his miracles. But when we get to Matthew chapter 17, it's as if the gospel writers lift the lid and show us the name that's on the inside. In fact, you could say that Matthew 17 is, is the whole gospel story revealed in one defining moment. Think about it. If we look through here, we've got strong echoes of Jesus' baptism. In fact, it's the same words that the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism. And we've got clear nods to his crucifixion. Because just like his crucifixion on Good Friday, there were two men on each side as he stood on the hill. Well, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, there are also two men while he stands on the hill. There's also strong hints of the resurrection because his clothes are dazzling white and all is swathed in heavenly glory. But it's not just a microcosm of the gospel story. It's also giving us the gospel's value, Jesus' value. In today's gospel lesson, we're shown just who Jesus is and what difference all this makes. That's what I want us to look at this morning in Matthew 17. What does the transfiguration reveal to us about Jesus? What does it reveal to us about ourselves? And what difference does it make? So let's start with that first question. What does this passage show us about Jesus? Well, frankly, it shows us a lot. And we can actually unpack this for several weeks. We could talk about his glorified state with his face shining like the sun and his clothes dazzling white. Talk about how this reveals his divine nature and gives us a glimpse of what Jesus was like before he took on human flesh. We could talk about Moses and Elijah, how they represented the law and the prophets. And what Matthew is trying to say here is how Jesus is the living embodiment of the law and the living fulfillment of the prophets. We could talk about what the Father says in verse 5, how this is his beloved Son, and in him he is well pleased, and we should listen to him. There's a lot we could unpack, but for the sake of a 20-minute sermon, I think we can summarize what's revealed here in one little word, hope, hope. In the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed to be our one true source of hope. You see, what we need to understand is that this story is actually sandwiched in between two other stories which help bring to light how Jesus is our one true source of hope. So the first story, the story that just precedes this one, 
is about Jesus taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, taking them to Caesarea Philippi would have been like Jesus taking his disciples to the Las Vegas of the Middle East, okay? It was an utterly despicable city. It's a place where they worship the god, the pagan god Pan. And it's from his name that we get words like panic and pandemonium. He was a debaucherous god. But he wasn't the only one being worshipped in Caesarea. There was also Caesar Augustus who was venerated. And the city was literally named after him. And this was a man who ruled his kingdom by force, violence, and oppression. Jesus took them there to show his disciples symbolically what this world is like when you lift the lid on it. And what is revealed is a world broken by sin that is debaucherous, chaotic, violent, and oppressive. The second story, the story that, that happens just after the mountaintop moment, is about Jesus and his disciples traveling down the mountain and back into the valley, where they're immediately confronted by a very powerful demon. And then they're persecuted, and ultimately Jesus is put to death on his cross. It's in that context, up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, above the valleys of chaos and pain and death, that Jesus reveals himself to be our one true source of hope, the one who can pull us out from those valleys and bring us above it all. That's what's being revealed here in Matthew 17. But if you're like me, you want to know what does that hope look like today? Because to be honest, it sounds quite lovely, you know, Jesus pulling us out of the dark, deep valleys of life. But the truth of the matter is, often it feels like we're stuck in those valleys. And I want to know, where is that hope then? Well, I started thinking about this. And I remembered an article that I read a few months ago in Christianity Today. In the article, they were talking about the war in Ukraine. They sent a journalist over there to interview the people whose lives had been turned upside down by Putin's war. Even though many had lost their homes, their businesses, their family members, even though their lives had been thrown into a deep, dark valley, there was one group that continued to gather together despite the constant bombing. One group that continued to gather for worship despite the constant threats and danger. When they were asked why they continued despite the inherent dangers, one of the pastors said, it's because our hope is in the Lord, the one who holds all things together. No matter how many things fall apart, the Lord who created this world and continues to hold this world together is our hope. Even if nuclear, if nuclear attacks happen, the hope we have is we have a home with Jesus and we will be together with him. And he's the one who is helping us now. And when I read that, I realized that's the kind of hope that is being revealed to us here on the mountain of transfiguration. In that moment when Peter and James and John saw Jesus transformed in all of his glory, they knew without a doubt that Jesus was their one true source of hope, even when life led them into valleys. And the same is true for us today. We too can look to Jesus to find our hope and our peace despite, that we desperately need. When we feel lost and alone, he's the one who walks with us and never leaves our side. When we face trials and tribulations, he's the one who gives us strength to persevere. When we're feeling hopeless and in despair, he's the one who reminds us there is always hope in him. And we know he's our hope because after this moment in Matthew 17, we read that Jesus travels to Jerusalem to deal with our greatest source of hopelessness. 
which is sin and death. And because Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross, we know he can defeat anything else that would bring us hopelessness. That, in one word, is who Jesus is under the lid. He's our hope, which makes him our greatest value. But now, what does this reveal about us? And what difference does it really make? What difference does Jesus make? Well, to arrive at both answers, we simply need to look at what happens immediately after God the Father speaks. We see that at that moment, we read that the disciples immediately fell down to the ground, overcome by fear and horror. And I think that is a very good summary of the human condition without Jesus. It very much reveals who we are at that moment. We are on the ground and we're terrified. What is revealed to us in this passage as we look under our lid is that we are earthly, fleshly, limited creatures. And in the face of eternity and glory and divinity and revelation, we're petrified out of our skin. We may arrange this world to be so self-absorbing and so busy that we're perpetually distracted from who we truly are. But when we come to the defining moment, when we come to the moment where the truth about ourselves is revealed to us, we find out who we are. We are people coward in terror and helpless in horror. That, unfortunately, is the name that is revealed under us. But the good news is, we don't have to remain that way. Because in that moment, Jesus changed it all for his disciples. And he can change it all for us as well. At that moment, we read that Jesus came, he touched them, and he said, get up. Do not be afraid. Four things that he did for his disciples that made a difference, and four things that he does for us. He came to them, he touched them, he raised them up, and he drove away their fear. He comes to us as well. Not in flesh and blood like he did here with the disciples, but now he comes to us through the Holy Spirit, which is no less personal. In fact, in many ways, it's far more personal because Jesus doesn't just come to us on the face value, but he comes into our hearts. And he comes to us no matter how fallen, frail, fragile, fearful we are. Jesus comes to us. Then he touches us. Now, touch can be electric. It can be infectious and transformative. And when Jesus touches us, his touch is healing. It's redemptive, and it changes everything. You know, one of the things that drew, drew me to this church tradition, Anglicanism, is that every week in the Eucharist, we receive a very tangible reminder that Jesus still touches us today. And what I love about this church, and I've only ever seen it in this church, is when many of you come forward to receive communion, the person next to you, kneeling down, will often place their hand on the other person's back. It speaks to how Jesus still touches us today through his church body. Then third, Jesus raises us. He tells us, get up, get up. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be intimidated because we're his beloved companion. And he's walking with us every moment of the valley. He has raised us from a state of spiritual death to a new life and given us new purpose and meaning. And nothing can change that. We don't need to be afraid. Finally, he says, don't be afraid. Not because bad things won't happen. Not because we won't face challenges or sadness or grief or regret. Not because life won't throw us into valleys. But because he has come to us. Because he has touched us. He has raised us. And he is with us always. That's the difference Jesus makes. 
He comes, he touches, he raises, and he transforms us. That's our transformed true identities when we're in him. So what does the transfiguration reveal to us? Well, it shows us that Jesus is our one true source of hope and that without him, our identity is in shambles. But the good news is that the transfiguration also reveals that Jesus can change our identities and give us new ones. Today is a day that reminds us that it's as if Jesus lifts our lid to look what's underneath and read the name. And even though we might look good on the outside, on the inside, names might read something like Chase Campbell. Frail, broken, insecure, notorious sinner. I'm just being honest. What would yours read if you're being honest? Whatever it is, Jesus is is telling us today, it doesn't have to be that way. He's saying, I can erase that. I can give you a new name. I can give you my name. And I can exchange all the broken parts inside and give you new, better ones. That's what's so great about the transfiguration. It not only reveals Jesus' immense value in our lives, but the value that could be ours if we invest our entire lives in him. As Lent begins this week on Wednesday, and we commit ourselves to journeying back down the mountain into the valleys with Jesus, ultimately following him to his passion and death, we're being invited to hold on to this vision during the season of Lent to remind ourselves of the great value we have in Jesus and the value we have in his eyes. The journey we're about to embark from the Mount of Transfiguration to the Mount of Golgotha is one of transformation. And today reminds us of what that transformation looks like. He became like us so that we can become like him. Extreme value in unexpected places. Amen.